I want to thank our sponsor nextestate.com who specialize in English speaking, buying, selling and managing of properties in the German market. They're Berlin based. You can find them at next-estate.com. For those of you who don't think you're in the business of developing theory, uh, I want you to reconsider that. Because uh, even if you plan to just get a bachelor's or master's in management and then go off and conquer the world, uh, every time you try to learn from your own experience, you're developing a theory. A common language and a good theory is actually a more powerful tool for change than almost anything else that I've found. As we heard in the introduction to today's episode, Clayton Christensen was a huge fan of theory. He always would say that the theory has an opinion in order to take away that subjectivity about whose opinion is it anyway? Where is the source coming from? And I have a few quotes to start us off today before I introduce today's guest. Theory is something we all use, whether we know it or not. Theories are lenses through which we experience the world. And by changing the lens, we change not only what we see, but how we see it. In many ways, the term theory might better be framed as a verb as much as it is a noun, because the body of understanding is continuously changing as scholars who follow this process work to improve it. Theorists often get embroiled in the battles over the validity of theory rather than the outcome of those theories. It reminds me of something the evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins once wrote when he said, a formative influence on my undergraduate self was the response of a respected elder statesman of the Oxford Zoology Department when an American visitor had just publicly disproved his favorite theory. The old man strode to the front of the lecture hall, shook the American warmly by the hand and declared in ringing emotional tones, my dear fellow, I wish to thank you. I have been wrong for these 15 years. And Dawkins right, we, the students at the time, clapped our hands red. And then he goes on to say, can you imagine a government minister being cheered in the House of Commons for a similar admission? Resign, resign is a much more likely response. I share that quote by Dawkins because it is still the case when it comes to theory in many ways. It's still the case when people share their thoughts that they get attacked. And it's something that Clayton Christensen was very aware of when he introduced his theories. Indeed, his theories did get attacked. Theory is a baton to be passed, he would say. The copy right and copy left. Our guest will unpack these in a few moments. The paper I wanted to share today aims to provide a common language about the research process that helps management scholars spend less time defending the style of research they have chosen and build more effectively on each other's work. I felt this series on Clayton Christensen would not be complete without including today's guest because he co-authored a paper many years ago and he had done so much work on theory building before that. He's an anthropologist, but he's built on these theories. And it's a great pleasure to welcome him to today's episode. Paul Carlyle, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Aiden. It's wonderful to be with you today. And then also just to be a part of this tribute to Clay and everything he accomplished. And as you know, we'll talk more about that baton passing and 
how to move this from an individual sport of theorizing to a more collective sport of theorizing. I think that's one of the legacies that he, almost every talk he gave, almost every one, he brought up this question of theorizing. But in some ways, it, it remains probably one of the more elusive contributions uh, from his legacy. So looking forward to unpacking this. I thought, Paul, of um, the, you know, the, the beautiful part of evolution where monarch butterflies migrate and they pass on from generation to generation knowledge. And I thought about that when it came to this theory building. But it's much, much more difficult than that when it comes to humans, as we'll unpack in a little while. But let's start with your relationship with Clay and indeed how you came together to write this paper and then how you built on this afterwards as well. I think it was the first year I was at MIT at Sloan, and he was about to give a seminar um, in a, in a uh, I think it was a management technology seminar. And this is before the kind of the book, I think the book had been published, the, the Innovator's Dilemma had been published, but it was before it became anything, uh, you know, so he was still kind of wondering, you know, is this going to be enough for my tenure? Case? I mean, you know, this was those days. Um, and so, uh, so that's when I got to know him. And then a couple of the conversations we had there is, and of course I come from a, you know, I'm trained, you know, a background in anthropology, sociology. I think you'd basically call me a qualitative org theorist. That might be a reasonable category. So organizational behavior or theory. And so when we first started to talk to talk about his theories, you know, the paper with Joe Bauer in 95, the, the article there was focused on a disruptive technology. And of course, I think, you know, that conversations and others. And I agreed with him to say, I think disruptive innovation is a better title. So, you know, um, instead of disruptive technology, because there's plenty of disruptive technology that sits on shelves. So the innovation question started to get at the process of, right. And not just the outcome of the technology, but I kind of teased him a little bit. And I said, um, but of course, as an org theorist, I'm going to be thinking about how, do you construct a disruptive way of organizing or a disruptive organization? And of course, this might get into the debate of, you know, can legacy companies actually disrupt themselves? Why is it that startups or newly formed organizations seem to be the only ones or more likely the ones that generate this disruption? So that's kind of the, we had that conversation in 97, you know, this, this, his evolution from disruptive technology to innovation, but what might it look at like if it was organized? And I think that's kind of where our conversations started to happen because I think, I think this question of theorizing is the same as my previous work and the work I had been doing around creating knowledge. So how do you think about knowledge and knowing in organizations? So I think that's kind of where they came together. So I think, when this project first came to start a conversation was probably, you know, 2001, 2002. Um, so, you know, the book, his book took off. A lot of people kind of saying, where does it apply? Where does it not apply? Um, of course, he had already looked at different circumstances. So that we'll, we'll talk about the word circumstances a little bit later on. But, you know, what is it in disk drives? What is it in steel? What is it in, you know, in other, other environments? So he had already started to think to himself, you know, there's these anomalies out there. How do I explain them? Um, but also, I think as also people started to criticize his work, he was saying, well, then then join me in this task. Um, and then this is also about the time when he started the Building a uh, Sustainable and Successful organization or Enterprise, the BSSE course at Harvard, which became a kind of a, a thing for two decades. Um, it's still taught there now. 
where he was trying to create a common language in the classroom to say, um, you know, here's a here's not just disruptive uh, disruption theory, but other types of theories that we teach you HBS and other management places. Do these work and under which circumstances do they work? So in some ways, I think as he started to to react to how people react into his work, as he tried to kind of enroll people, as he tried to make this class a, um, a heady theorizing thing, because, uh, you know, he, 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 if, if you watch certain videos, he would say something like good managers are good theorists. You can just watch them. They're really good at saying what's core knowledge and what's circumstantial knowledge. They're very good at parsing the difference. And um, so I think he was on that journey. And of course, so he came back to me, Paul, he says, Paul, you know, I know you've been doing all this work on knowledge. Um, you know, let's see what we can do to kind of come up with a common way of doing it. And I think maybe another way to think about him is he was a business economist who did field studies, right? So that makes him a bit of a, a, a contradiction, right? So he's very qualitative in his stuff, but he also does... Um, kind of numeric uh, statistical work, but, you know, pure economists don't get in the field. In my case, I was trained in anthropology and sociology, but in the realm of organizational theory and as a qualitative person, but I also did mathematical models <laughs> in some of my work. So in some ways, we're both kind of, we both do multiple lenses. We both do quantitative work, we both do qualitative work. So we ha already had that appreciation and we were, discussing the fact that there's not a common language to talk because at the time, and, and this is still the case, theorizing is a very, it's a political conversation. So this might be postmodernism versus positivism, those kind of, you know, big old words. But even today, you know, we live in a world where who's doing the theorizing? Uh, is it Western tradition? Is it, you know, which tradition is being done? So often what would happen is there would be all these political debates but the actual practical process of doing it was left um, either undone or not articulated again in a new way, or it existed in 10 different books and 30 different articles over the last 50 years. So I think um, one of the outcomes of this collaboration was um, his BSSE course, which then allowed MBA students to engage in this serious business of theorizing and improving the theory. So when they left HBS, they could be, you know, creating their own knowledge as well. So they could, you know, because Clay would often talk about the importance of it's not what you think, but how you think. And then um, I pull it into my doctoral classes. And, you know, the, the paper has, it exists in about three or four different forms, uh, fairly high citation in three or four different forms. But the main people who would always reach out to me or Clay for the article were typically PhD students or faculty, other schools who were trying to develop a theorizing class that was practical and not just in the polemics of the debate of the day, you know, positivism and postmodernism, qualitative, quantitative. We just thought, we, how do we use theory to solve problems? So I think that's both how we started to talk, but then how it landed in this uh, project. There was also a, a gentleman working at the uh, at, at Inside at the Institute at the time named David Sundahl who like me also has a, a training in philosophy. Um, and so that he was a part of those early conversations as well. So uh, I think Clay was really invested in saying, how do we construct this common language to be helpful?
there's so much in there that in so many ways we can go. I, I'd love to, in a moment, come back to you getting in there to the point of you having the conversation because one of the things Clay, you know, famously had on the sign on his door and anomalies wanted, and that included conversations. So he welcomed debate over the idea because that made it better. And you talk about that in this paper as well. But I, I wanted to say something now because you've kind of you've pressed the trigger for this one in a way. And from this paper, the cycles of theory building in management research. One thing I wanted to mention is the value of neurodiversity or different people from different backgrounds or different knowledge realms or different parts of the world or gender, whatever it might be. Because you say in that paper, one of Kuhn's from 1962 most memorable observations was that anomalies that led to the toppling of a reigning theory or paradigm almost invariably were observed by researchers whose backgrounds were in different disciplines than those comprising the traditional training of leaders in the field. The beliefs that adherence to the prior theory held about what was and what was not possible seemed to shape so powerfully what they could and could not see that they often went to their graves denying the existence or relevance of the very anomalous phenomena that led to the creation of improved theory. Researchers from different disciplines generally use different methods and have different interests toward their object of study. Such differences often allow them to see things that might not be recognized or might appear inconsequential to an insider. And therefore, you say it is not surprising that many of the most important pieces of breakthrough research in the study of management, organization, and markets have come from scholars who stood astride two or more academic disciplines. Beautiful. That was you guys coming together. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I absolutely agree. And then, you know, it's interesting, um, you know, uh, in the main paper, we also lead with William James, um, you know, that tools are, are, some would say they are, you know, they're tools, they're instruments. So it's not theory, big T. I always say, you know, theory, it's small t, so it's it's a tool. And and that's also fits with this idea of, and I think Kuhn also, I can't remember if it was Kuhn, who says, you know, physics, maybe it was even Einstein, I can remember, you know, physics changes one casket at a time. And, you know, again, till, and of course, I, I think the question becomes now, you know, if you think about the question of innovation, we, we can't wait that long. You think about big challenges of climate change, you think about big changes of how to make more sustainable project, we, we can't afford to wait that long. So I think the question here is, you know, uh, you know, I wrote an article, you know, another 20 years ago around opening up the black box of knowledge creation, right? So there's a black box there. And if the black box itself is problematic, you know, knowledge is sometimes a sort of and sometimes a barrier innovation, there's something there we don't fundamentally understand. And I think, you know, maybe um, kind of part of my training as well is I, th I think there's a tendency to be, I'll say maybe two things. Uh, we over-ego knowledge theorists, you know, the, the Richard Dawkins example that you brought up. And then we over-cognize. So, you know, we, we, have, a, we have a penchant for ego and, and, and cognition. That's, that's the Western tradition, right? Um, and so I have a different point of view, which is, um, you know, invention is an individual act. Innovation is a collective act. And so the question is, how do people read each other's minds when they're collectively working together? So my, this is where the anthropologist in me comes from, which is, so I began the study of knowledge artifacts. 
So what are the things, if you look at the physical culture, what are the things that people use that represent what they know? What are the things that people use that from another silo or another group of what they know? And then when they come together to collaborate, what happens? Sometimes those create barriers, but then sometimes they fashion other artifacts, a common language, which then allows them to collaborate. And of course, then what you begin to watch as they collaborate, they begin to change. Because, you know, you can't just add two and two equals four in this context, right? When you bring people together and start to fashion a common language, things start to transform. So it's not just addition, it's a transformative kind of thing. And so I think that's a lot of the, um, you know, and now we see the connection between the cycles of theory building and actually the cycles of knowledge that either get trapped as a barrier or become a source of innovation. And then hence, you know, who's disrupted, who's not disrupted. So I often, you know, when I was, when you and I first talked, I was thinking, you know, you know, that this the theory building, the cycles of theory building is actually thinking about how do we disrupt our own thinking? And, um, and, and again, the, the question there becomes, again, the challenge of academic contexts are, again, the ego is, you know, there's big ego because there's tenure, there's a lot at stake for individual papers. And so it becomes more of an individual sport. But, you know, as Clay was famous, and I try to do in my own life is how do you make it that collective, uh, the passing of the baton and um, you know, more like a laboratory, but, you know, business education, there's not a lab, there's not shared laboratories with postdocs and assistant professors, full professors working together in a more of a collaborative way. So that's, that's a, that challenge is somewhat unique to business academics. It speaks to so much of the problems of silo. So in a paper you wrote called, transferring, translating and transforming an integrative framework for managing knowledge across borders, you, you essentially pull out that well, most innovation happens at the intersections of different people from different disciplines, including in organizations, different people from different departments who are seeing things from a different perspective, hence a different lens. And it's one of the huge challenges in organizations because we're in execution mode so much. And then we figure out a way that works and then the tectonic plates of disruption change the landscape and then we need to think differently like you said i've figured out a way that works now you're asking me to change it and because knowledge is in silos and streamed in some ways nobody's swimming across swim lanes in order to actually communicate with each other and, and communicate differently. This speaks so much to your background in anthropology, because it's a human part of the knowledge creation. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and in some ways, the part that's most taken for granted, because you don't even see, yeah, we know the swim, swim lanes are there, but we have a hard time seeing them. But also the other question, too, is the swim lanes are functional as well, because you do need specialization to do your job well. So in some ways, this is back to the the, you know, the, the problematic nature of knowledge is also like the dilemma for the innovator, right? How do I, how do I take from the old, which is useful, but also uh, blend it with the new? And that's kind of one of the big paradoxes. So one of the things that I did when I came into my own, with my own background, kind of anthropology, and then when I married it with organizational theory was to say, it's, um, and these were, this particular word's not mine. This comes from Lee Starr and Jeff Bowker and a few others, um, this notion of infrastructure. Now, if, we're, if this was a conversation about IT, we, we say, oh, we know what infrastructure is. 
But in a, in a sociological sense, they think about infrastructure are two things. There are actors and there are artifacts. And those artifacts could be a spreadsheet. They could be a piece of, of, of traditional technology. They could be a piece of paper that I would write on. They could be anything symbolic. So the question is, all of reality are just those two things. So it's a, you know, it's kind of a way to both think about what are the primitives that I could go after addressing these dilemmas, right? Because in some ways you need a real set of primitives to understand what's going on. Otherwise you just black box it and say, well, you know, let's just start a new company, right? Legacy companies can't change. And so when you start thinking about the artif knowledge artifacts that people use, you start to realize, yes, there's a mental model. But to get people to change their mental model, I got to often, somebody's got to be in charge of the infrastructure to create new infrastructure. <laughs> and so, you know, my, my current role where I'm at, uh, I'm Senior Associate Dean for Innovation in, in, at the Question School at BU. And so I've spent the last couple of years creating a new form of online education. So it's, it's online at scale. So it's very different than previous versions of online, but also very high quality. So if I think about what I've been doing the last three years, it's launched, it's successful. I have been creating infrastructure for my team to interact in new ways because, again, it's not a 40-person classroom setting, right? It's a different setting. Uh, rubrics are different when you function at scale. So I think in some ways, you know, if, you know, um, you know, unfortunately, Clay's not with this, but I think in some ways, if there was an opportunity to revisit um, this article, and then turn it into a book or something like into it, it would be say, you know, how do you take um, the individual manager as scientist looking for anomalies, individual action? How do you take the manager as leader to create collective action? And that's why I would frame it around, how do you help them design infrastructures for innovation? Because the current existing infrastructure is going to trap you. If you're constructing infrastructures for innovation, you're thinking about maybe I bring in people from a different division or different function, different part of the globe. But of course, then when they're working with others, I got to think about how do they interact in ways where they can start to construct shared artifacts, common language, common methodologies, common interests. So you have to, because that naturally will not happen. I mean, maybe a, a quick example. I did a I was uh, with an organization that was trying to develop um, treatments for multiple sclerosis. Um, it was um, something you and I share in common, uh, interest in neurological uh, diseases. And um, they were bringing together for the first time people from genetics, people from developmental biology, people from immunology, people from um, other groups, because he figured that the reason why we hadn't made breakthroughs in multiple sclerosis is because everybody just took the funding within their silo and, and, and spent the money there, did the science there. But what we know about multiple sclerosis, it is a multi-causal disease, right? It's immune, it's age. We don't really fully know the cause. And so um, I was in the first meeting where they brought people together and he, he was smart enough. And of course we talked about it is often people will want to come in and talk about what they know, their solutions. And of course, if you've got a bunch of PhDs, they're going to talk about that, right? And we were very careful to say, no, you're going to talk about what you don't know. And what quickly began to happen is people started to realize I talk about it like arthritis and you talk about it like genetics, developmental genetics. But we're climbing the mountain from two different sides, but the mountain is the same thing. So by making them focus on, you know, the what they don't know 
um, what problems they share. And so to me, this is where, and this is a, a this is more similar to my work than, than Clay's work. He focused on the question of anomalies because anomaly would pop out as you're, as you're going through the theory building cycle. There's something that doesn't quite fit. In my work, I focus on if I have to construct an infrastructure for innovation, the problem is one of novelty. Now let's decide if we can decide what novelty is, but what you can kind of maybe just kind of do a quickie. You can say the opposite of novelty is a hundred percent confirmation. So the existing infrastructure tells me exactly what's going on right now. And I don't need to change as you start to move up and you got competition, the world's changing, the world becomes increasingly uncertain, but uncertainty is of course an abstraction, right? What does what does uncertainty mean? What it means is the world is becoming more novel. So there's new actors, new artifacts, new things that are coming at me that I have to make sense of. But I have this existing infrastructure that is confirming what I currently know. And again, this, now you can hear clay in your head. You can say, the data we do have is about the past. How do we see around the corner? How do we see the future? So the word novelty is a constant reminder. I have to attend to the construction of an infrastructure to see the novelty. So I don't worry about the future because that's, a, again, future is an abstraction, right? I think about who do I need to have in the room as a source of novelty? What artifacts might they bring? And what new artifacts might need to be constructed as they interact with other people to generate and discover the novelty? So that's kind of the way... I come at it from a, a scholar who tries to say, how do I allow teams, organizations, um, a multisclerosis nonprofit um, increase its innovation? Particularly when, as we know that, you know, the, the humbling part about innovation is that, you know, the world is more complicated than we can ever understand. And so we do have to bring people from different places to do that. So in some ways, I can't figure it out, but I can create a process that helps a lot of other people figure it out. And I think that's kind of the, you know, kind of has been my focus since, since that uh, work with Clay. I wanted to share your 3T framework because this is about knowledge management across boundaries in, in organizations or across fields. And I, I, it made me think of one thing, though, first was even when we talk about a common language, what what many people if you were on a workshop for example and you even say that many people think it's jargon or the language that each silo say uses but we think in language as well and language in a way you know we create these stories in our mind that become theories that they become the lenses through which we see things and i and i find it so useful when you for example say they're identifying a common problem is a common language because it's like oh look this we all have this and then you you get people onto the same page so paul i'd love if you talk to the 3t framework and then we might juxtapose it with the framework that was in that paper to show how things have changed as your knowledge has changed over the past while in some ways i you know the, the framework functions as a couple levels uh, it, it is both a way to navigate the world so think about it as a heads-up display you know, how do I use to navigate? Because I might have to think about if I'm assuming when I'm interacting with somebody that we have a common language um, and we start to talk the same. But when do we start to realize that actually the common language is, you know, we think about six sigma. Think about six sigma is a very precise numerical number. Right. Um, but if I'm at corporate quality versus I'm managing quality inside my division, 
the meaning of those words are, uh, of that number is different. Because, you know, if I have to hold Six Sigma 24-7 every day and I don't have the budget to maintain my human capital, and, but the corporate person is saying, you know, hey, why can't you maintain that 24-7? You're going to have to have a negotiation about the budget. Yeah, so, so the question is, the, this is where the question of even though the language is the same, sometimes the – and so this is where we start to kind of move up the triangle. So if we assume – if we have a common language, we think that's sufficient, then we just transfer knowledge, right? But once we start to realize that's no longer working, again, the six example, then we just have to say, are we using the same method? That may, well, six sigma is calculated the same, that's shared. But yet if I'm on the production line versus corporate quality, the associated methods with that on what the implications, what six sigma means are different, which then you get to the top level, you begin to say, there's this pragmatic difference. And this is where you start to talk about interests. Our interests are different. And so, again, if they're going to have to renegotiate the budget to get training so that the, the factory floor can have the human capital to do to maintain Six Sigma, they're going to have to change a little bit how they think. They may have to develop a new shared semantic, a new translation. So this is, again, common language, uh, common method and common interests. And so in some ways, one way to think about the framework is to think about are there breakdowns? at what level. But I think the default when we come into any room is we assume we have all the same. And, and the question is, so what do we do? So maybe the anomaly is, okay, I thought we were talking Six Sigma. Then you bring something up and I'm starting to say, oh, that's different. Now I could just resist you and say, why are you saying that? Or I could say, where does that come from? So in some ways it's a heads up display to get uh, us more creative and open to the novelty. Because again, you see on the flare there is as novelty increases, we often have to move up that stack. I think another thing that when when we wrote this particular paper was there was a kind of a, within the literature, there was a big debate. There's a lot of people just saying, well, you just transfer knowledge, right? That's all you do. Some people then, that would be more of the technology people, the knowledge management people at the time. Then there might be saying, well, it's about interpretation. So it's the cultural view of knowledge. And then, of course, then you have the, the political economy view of knowledge as this you know, source of conflict. And what I observed was it depends on the circumstances. And so, um, so in some ways, this prefix, this is a little bit of, you know, as a theory, it says under different circumstances, different frameworks apply, but more importantly, it's not just the, the lenses of different frameworks, but as a manager, you may have to move up, move up and down this in the course of a three minute conversation. <laughs> if you're open to it. And so in some ways it becomes very pragmatic heads up display, but it also makes sense of big traditions, whether in academics, but also point of view, points of view that might be coming at you. So it's, it's, it's both a way to reorient people on how to think about knowledge appro appropriately, strong word, sorry about that one, but also to orient yourself just as, um, as you navigate the world that comes at you. So that's kind of, it's, um, that's where it came from. Um, and that's how it's connected to anthropology and all the previous work I'd done. Most of the audience, Paul, are consultants, CEOs, change makers in organizations trying to drive change. And let's imagine, for example, we'll, we'll leave the, the, the framework on the screen and imagine I'm trying to come to you to sell an idea to you within the organization. 
And how would I then interact with the framework in order to make sure we're on the same page? So at least you're you're hearing what I'm saying. And I know there's loads in that. We could do a whole show on that or a series <laughs> and would never get to the end of it. But at, at a top line level, if I was to use the framework in that type of conversation or that type of, or, or to your example or, of bringing all those different departments together for multiple sclerosis, how would you use the framework in that respect? Yeah, Aiden, thanks for your question. Yeah. Um, so maybe, uh, you know, the, the, the visualization, that quick and dirty visualization we just put up there would be to kind of think about. So the, the main triangle work that I have done is about what's happening at the boundary in relationship between two different actors from two different places. So if we had, you know, the right side up triangles on either side, it would be they have a lot of common language, you know, that's uniquely theirs with their own methods and their own interests but their interests are somewhat hidden. Their methods are somewhat hidden. So they only use their common language. On the other side is exactly the same thing. So you have this huge bedrock of common language on either side uh, that at this point are not shared in common because how do we attend to the sharing them in common? And so in some ways that becomes, so like you said, if I come into the saying, hey, I, I, I have this new product idea. I have this new service idea. I just came from Southeast Asia. I've seen these things or doing things differently there. What I would have to be very aware of is how their right side up triangle is constructed. And I wouldn't be thinking, I think about, so they use a language and of course, language itself is an artifact, right? Language is a human construction that we use to get things done. I would need to be aware of their, their, um, their methods. So long-term, short-term, customer focused, backroom focused, focused. I would then have to realize that that then influences their interests, short-term, long-term, uh, business unit or future. I mean, again, you could start to kind of spelunk that kind of uh, uh, stack model all you want. So in some ways, if I don't come prepared with that kind of archaeological understanding, if you will, um, I don't stand a chance. So if I have a little bit of that understanding, but also bring some possible artifacts that I could share that might be somewhere in the middle. So there was a woman named Lee Starr um, in 1989 who developed the concept called a boundary object. And she identified these as things that tend to sit in between different types of groups. I took that work and then my research was certain artifacts create barriers, certain artifacts allow people to collaborate and innovate together. And so the language of a boundary object would be useful here. I'm thinking about what would be a boundary object that I would use when I talk to Aiden. Again, he's short-term focused, but he wants, uh, you know, he wants to get promoted to the, the, the strategy group. So he may be interested in growth in the future. So how do I bring in something that's a hybrid or uh, of those two things? Um, and maybe it's not a, a, a fundamental detailed measure like a, an ROI or anything like that. But I may work that on an envelope. I may work that on a piece of paper, but I'm representing the short term and the long term. So how do I get him to start to open up this space? So if you think about it, if I come together and I don't think about where you come from, the only option I got is transferring knowledge and language. That's not going to innovate, right? Because you're probably going to win because <laughs> you control the methods of how you fund things, what's a good product, what's a bad product. So if I can get you to move up, that stack, then you begin to think differently together. Now, of course, after this meeting, we'd have to pull in other people. and We'd have to go on that same process. We might, you and I might then have some new shared language about how we might articulate that. Because, you know, this is the collective action problem that is innovation is that 
you know, you and I would have to influence potentially 50, 100, 1,000 people, depending on the scale or scope of what we're, what our innovation endeavor is. So that's, that's one way I would use um, um, moving up and down that stack because you're starting to realize how is their stack constructed um, and what's taken for granted over there. Firstly, I think it's so, so important. So, ma so many of us in innovation work blame the recipient of our message. We kind of go, oh, they're dinosaurs. They totally don't get it. And um, we fail to prepare all the time in like to the level that you talked about. We walk into That's that meeting. Job. We have, yeah. We, yeah, we do it all the time. And and I think it's, it's probably the biggest lesson I have of my own failures when I was in corporate innovation was that I, I thought that just saying it and getting them excited about the idea was enough. But it didn't yeah. speak to resource allocation. And it's one of the, such the values of doing this, this series is when you put all the pieces together and then you look at what was behind that paper and, you know, what, what was Paul's work and what was his future yeah. work and what has he discovered since. You, you yourself get a more holistic lens and you look yeah. back on your mistakes and you go, oh, no wonder I couldn't sell the idea. Yeah, I, I mean, I have this reputation and it was it got challenged during COVID to some degrees. In some ways, I was building this new program and we had to do it all during COVID. It was all virtual. But I always have a backpack with me wherever I go. And it, there's some things in my backpack. There's lots of blank paper. There's a variety of pens, different colors, some for whiteboards, some not whiteboards. And there's erasers. And so any place I go into a room and I start to talk because often, you know, they want me to say something, um, is and I quickly pull out pens and paper and hand it to them. Because this is something is language doesn't lie on purpose, but language is not causal enough. So there's a simple way I think about it. If we're using words, eventually we need to map the words in some kind of order. Otherwise, the words, we don't know what they mean. So this is where they start to get more, what do the, what do the words mean in an order? What happens first, second, third? So if you go from language and then so think about that middle tier translation, you have to translate that and map them together. Otherwise, you don't know what they mean or their consequences. And then the top layer is how do I go from language to a, a mapping, a method, to creating a model? Now, why do I use the word model? Because sometimes once you and I then you know, say we're, we had to change the UX, right? Maybe that was the thing I had to convince you to change the UX. Once we start realizing that, you know, we, we do a new wireframe, we're going to have to hire some new people, new budget, change time frame, whatever the case may be. Once we do the model, we start to realize, oh, and these are the consequences of this change. So we really want to innovate, again, budget or a new person, or I'm personally going to oversee it, or you're personally, that's the decision that's made. And so... I think a lot of the question here around is we, tr we traffic in language because we, we have to. That's a, bit, that's a key building block of basically human, human collaboration, cooperation. But often we stop there. And the only people who have the luxury to stop there are people who are currently powerful, right? <laughs> now, they won't be powerful much longer because disruption, you call it, is going to come in. But that's the only, but if you're, if you're a, if you're trying to disrupt, if you're trying to innovate, you can't just use language because that's not getting, uh, that's not going through the, you know, the translation and the transformation that would have to occur uh, because, it, again, if innovation is a collective, 
endeavor, not an individual endeavor, then you have to enroll other people. And I think the, the, and the part of it too is, you, but you also then learn a ton while you're enrolling other people. You change your language, you change the, the causal or the, the mapping technique. You learn a lot about, okay, that's why Aiden is, is, is resisting me because I didn't know that about how budget, his budget cycle, his budget cycle is every six months. Okay, that's going to maybe change how we do this and we make some adjustments. So all of that is revealing the infrastructure. I'm going back to that language. The infrastructure is actors and artifacts. And so we're engaging in revealing it, raising it to the surface so we can deal with it and then adding new infrastructure so we can uh, drive the transformation. And then again, I'm going to use the word novelty again. It's one of my favorite words around because that's how you go into novelty, right? Novelty does, doesn't knock on your door and say, how you doing? You actually have to create it because you, dis- you, you know, it's this paradox of you, you discover and you create it because Aiden and I are having to deep, detailed, deep conversation. We are discovering this together. I love it, Paul. And it's, it, it is so difficult. And again, you mentioned there, innovation is a team sport. You need not only other people to carry the idea on and build it, for example, but you also need, as we said, all the different actors from different backgrounds, different neurodiverse backgrounds. So they actually see it differently and they can identify chinks in the armor early so you don't go and build something and then realize, oh, it's not possible with regulation. And again, mayor culpa, and I'm sure it's the case for so many of our innovator listeners, is we try to force it through and we try to fly under the radar. And we use that term, let's ask for forgiveness, not permission. And, and that has its place, but you will always come to a stumbling block and it could kill the project. And, and I think... The biggest thing I've learned from doing the show and all the work we've done, we've done shows recently on language, we've done shows on empathy, is when you try to see things from the person you're trying to sell the thing to, their perspective and their resource allocation, you totally frame it differently. Because you can kind of go, look, if we did this, I actually think this could help you achieve your goals. Then the person starts listening because now you're speaking their language. And this brings us to then... Nicely as a segue, I think, to go, okay, let's talk about then theory building. Because if if I, and, and here in the, it's interesting, actually, and I, I love to show this to, I mentioned earlier on, to contrast it to your diagram, to show the diagram from that paper you co-authored with play, and maybe you'll talk us through that. So this is, I want to build a theory and this will be of particular interest as you said many people who are phd doctorates or or or, uh candidates reach out to you and they're kind of going asking you about this work and i can see why because it's about theory building and i and i wanted to just say just like the innovator who has an idea and doesn't want anybody to crap on that idea and destroy it early so do we do with our knowledge we we have this theory that we hope and work and this is breakthrough this is great i don't want anybody to chip away at it but it's only through the chipping away at it that it actually makes it better so a lot in there but i'll share this diagram uh, paul and please talk us through this because it, it it looks different and it's the opposite direction of course but maybe you'll talk us through what this means yeah so this this is um you know, in in some ways, the, the models are similar, but they're not. But let, I'll get to that in, in a second. But I think in some ways, if you think a little bit about um, 
this is an approach to say the world comes at us, you know, because in some ways the, the purpose of theorizing is to understand empirically the world, right? And so this is why you start with that base layer. The first thing that you do is you go out and observe what is possible, right? So whether you're doing marketing or you're doing interviews or, again, you're a, a, a PhD student looking at, you know, you know, the impact of AI, right? You know, th there's a myriad of things you could do with that. And so, again, in the effort to be pragmatic, much like my framework was to be pragmatic around how would a manager <laughs> go up and down that stack, this is pragmatic about, so where would you start? Uh, whereas the, the other stack model, mine upside down is saying, here's all the possibilities. <laughs> you got to figure out where you're at at a given point in time, right? That's a little bit of that. Whereas here's saying, let's start from the basics of, of let's describe the world. What is the phenomena? And then typically when we describe it, we start to kind of think about, well, how do we categorize it? Is it, is it AI? Is it an algorithm? Is there a distinction between, is there proscriptive AI? Is there prescriptive AI? Is there descriptive AI? So that's occurring in a lot of those debates. So you start to categorize things. And then if you're doing, in, the, in this, the, the, the statement at the top around the question of statements of association, sometimes we might call this correlation. These are typically in larger end studies, typically. So you have, you've done the observations, you have these attributes from the middle around these categories and you're saying, and, what, and what, uh, what's associated with good outcomes? And so you're kind of looking at uh, correlation. Statistics typically gives you correlation because it's working with large ends. And so this was the effort to say, this is how the typical research method could be taught. So if you go to a research methods class and PhD course, this is how you do it. Um, and then of course, then it gets to the question of, but, as you start to do more observation, you might say there's something that is anomalous. There's something that it didn't quite explain. And so that, then it becomes a cycle. So now you go back down and you say, maybe I go look at, I go from disk drives, I go to, you know, I go to steel or I go to um, healthcare or I go to, so again, you think about Clay's life, right? He's going from industry to industry and doing this thing. So this is kind of a, this would be the basic process that uh, an academic a PhD student would go through, but this is the process he's taking his Harvard second year MBAs through. He's realizing, you know, you can do some observation. What do you think about your know, jobs to be done, right? Is, is, is this thing doing the job to be done? How would you know? And it, what's it correlated with? Um, but he often would say that, but that's not good enough because for an academic, you, you can say on average, you know, large companies should do this and not do that. But of course, the world is not an average. You know, you are a particular manager in a particular company, in a particular division. So you can't do average action. And you have at your disposal resources and people that aren't, aren't on an average distribution, right? You have some of these and some of those. So, so this is where you start to get to this other part of the framework. So this is where we move from describing the world to how do we be, in this paper, uh, he used the phrase, more normative. Another phrase that we could use would be, how do we move from describing the world to prescribing? And so that's where you get the double, uh, the double triangle. And that became, this was a, when we first worked on the paper, um, we only had the one triangle because that's a, it's a very generic process of how you go about it. But we felt the need to add the second triangle because we wanted to say, it's not just enough to describe, we have to we can do better, right? <laughs> um, um, you know, going back to the original thing, whether it was Einstein or, um, you know, we can't afford to go one grave, 
casket at a time. The world cannot afford that. We have to move faster in terms of how we innervate through diseases, through climate change, sustainability. You know, so we, we owe the world more than this. And so then the second framework became a way to say, you know, so it's not simply statements of correlation because correlation is a good enough thing to publish in an academic journal, but it's not enough to give advice to a, a manager or to a leader or to an organization. And so this is where, again, norma theory, or you could even use the word more prescriptive is, okay, let's go back at it again. So, but let's look at it in different circumstances, maybe business unit one to business unit two, um, product development team one, product development two, or, you know, pre-digital age post. I mean, so you could think about where you would get your comparisons or uh, your different uh, circumstances. And so here we would go back, we would repeat the cycle. So we would explain again, observe the world, record it. And then we'd start to think about the categorization, just like in the first one. But then we'd start to think about how are these related to circumstances? Because this is this is kind of, a, and, and this could be more clear in the paper is, and you know, and when I teach my students, I ask, always ask the question, if you're talking to people who live in different circumstances, you know, you, you know, if you're an executive MBA program or something like that, often what they'll do is they'll talk about how they're different sometimes. And I typically force them to say, talk about how you're the same. You know, production is similar. So when you start to talk about how you're different, you realize it's the difference in the circumstances. You have more expensive labor, cheaper labor. You have more digitization, less digitization. I mean, you could start to say you're in, you're in Vietnam versus you're in Canada. Again, you could go to where the source of the variety, the, the potential innovation, right? Those are sources of novelty out there. Uh, and then you begin to understand how are the circumstances different? And so this is where you can begin to say, if certain things hold true, no, no matter if the circumstances change, then it's highly causal. Right. If, as the circumstances change, things are quite different in their outcome, then you have to update the theory to say, do I have a new set of categories? Do I have a new set of principles to explain this larger set, this greater variety of circumstances? So that improves the theory. And of course, by improving the theory, if you can explain more circumstances, then you potentially have a more powerful managerial framework. So I, I hope that. I hope that gives you kind of an example of how you, and so in some ways, it, 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 I, I don't want to directly map it onto mine, but, in, but given our previous conversation is if you're trying, if you're going to say, how do I learn from Southeast Asia? You know, what do I observe? How do I categorize it? And um, how do I begin to frame the causal thing? If I understand how that relates to your current, how you describe the world, you know, how agencies the world, that then begins to be similar to our previous conversation. I got to understand your infrastructure. And if I understand that, I'm, I'm more like, so this would be kind of like, this is the research methods you would use as a manager to build your argument. And then if you use the, the other 3T framework, this helps you see, I could have all these possible conversations from the research I've done. And I think, Paul, it's, it's so helpful beyond that. So if I got that idea over the line, and then I have, I, I, I use the same high level framework in my mind, say, as a lens to go, well, this is the same as getting a MVP to market. And then I get it to market. And then I take it down again. And I iterate it again, because everything changes. And 
for example, you mentioned there are circumstances, and we'd come back to that term. I thought about how in Disrupting Class, that Clay and Michael B. Horn, who was a co-author on that, he will talk about in the future, is there was a phone called the Grameen phone, and it was released in India. And in if, if we think about the value of a phone, we're thinking it from our current circumstances of, oh, it's to, you know, check social media or check emails or communicate, pay a bill, whatever it might be. But in India, a phone, for example, for a farmer was now I can. So because they didn't have massive access to a phone, they would have an entrepreneur who would have a phone and rent out for you, Paul, to make a call. And you you now as a farmer could ring ahead to a market and go, do you have a need for oats or whatever is my product, my crop? And they'd go, yes. And you'd agree the price there. And that changed the market because often in the past, I would have to go there. And then all the power was with the buyer and none no longer with the seller. And it made me think of that when you use the word circumstance, because the circumstance is different because of the condition for different people. And maybe that will help. And if it isn't, if it's a terrible, <laughs> if it's a terrible example, tell me. It's a great example because, you know, I, I, you know, we used to do cases on, um, you know, um, soybean production in uh, India, right? So subsistent farming. So now we're going to use the word scarcity. You know, think about the, 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 uh, how would Clay say that? He would say it, the, uh, the, the non-consumption, right? So think about non-consumption. And so there, um, and, and again, and now I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw back in the word infrastructure. So in the United States, for example, or any place in Europe, you have this immense, te- uh, 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 telephone, cell tower infrastructure. So think about that as actors and artifacts in a network that function a particular way because of that history of that infrastructure. If you take that lens and plunk it onto rural India, it doesn't work because it would take 50 years to do that. So somebody who says, all I need is a phone and I may have to rent it. Now, now you're, now you're going to what? You're, you're, you're thinking about renting, you're flipping the business model, you're thinking licensing versus pay or you might license out of a portion of that but what you're thinking about is that what's the job that needs to be done there in those local circumstances um and so that but then you kind of think of that frees up all kind of innovative power because now you can use fancy we're like you're getting rid of you know information asymmetry right the information asymmetry goes very small compared to where it was before as you were at the mercy of the buyer. Now you you know negotiate on the spot on time. So there I'm, I'm going to use a fancy term is the innovation happens more powerfully because it's happened exactly when it needs to happen when the self-interest is most powerful. Right? If I can sell it now then then that means that farmer is going to take the action right then and there as opposed to having to dry the beans all the way into the power broker where the power broker has all the power. So when you think about when you think about the innovative potential that exists in our in our world, the disruption often comes in going to where the non-consumption is and creating a much simpler. The reason why it has to be simpler is because the current solution we have is not simple, and that's not simply because it was built. You know, the mini frame mainframe example. It's because it's a built infrastructure that's that's beyond a company. You know, the telecommunications infrastructure for the U.S. is is beyond one company, right? It is a societal kind of infrastructure. So I think this starts to kind of connect to this question of scarcity 
or and if again if you want to equate that with potential non-consumption are huge sources of innovation huge and they're typically scaled sources of innovation and then again going back to the notion of information asymmetry because i teach information economics as well is when you have massive information asymmetry that typically tells you there is waste there is there is dormant potential so the question is what technology what new social way of organizing what business model do i put there to un- unleash that potential so for me when i think about infrastructures for innovation it's tapping dormant potential and again you could go to practicalities like well then what's the common language so are they going to speak a little bit of, you know, because then they had to, to standardize on certain languages, you know, India has multiple languages in it. Or is it just numeric? Do they have a form that people enter in? Num- you know, so then you then it gets to the details of the interface and stuff like that. But that's those are smaller details than than, um, you know, changing business model, et cetera, how you would go about it. So. So to me, the, you know, you know, the other example in my head that's kind of flying is you can see how I'm zooming in and zooming out. And that's what theory allows you to do. And so you can go to a very small artifact and then you can go to these large, you know, you know, larger telecommunications business model infrastructures and then see how they relate and see if you can zoom in and zoom out, depending on who's in the room, I talk to them differently. That's the skill that you have to have as a, as a leader in, in innovation is you have to be able to zoom in and zoom out. It highlights as well, Paul, how, it's not as clear cut as it as it appears, and by that I mean there's a huge expectation on leaders. So they're the idea of execute and or exploit and explore in parallel, but they're human beings, and oftentimes they don't have have the time, the luxury of the time, in order to do that, and then lead, and then think about sustainability and diversity, inclusion, etc. There's there's so much on a leader's plate. And the reason I say that is, therefore, you need to have all the boundaries. You need to be boundaryless as an organization in order for people to communicate. And yes, their individual language for those different silos is important because they need to function there, but they need to be able to communicate and knowledge share, etc. Which is why I think this work is so important. And I wanted to, again, shine a light on it. And Maybe you've thought on that, but I, I wanted to highlight something because I thought about how a book, a, a certain book can all of a sudden be a meme within an organization and create a new framework of thinking, etc. But also, so can a fad. And you address this in that paper with Clay. You say, fads come and go when a researcher studies a few successful companies, finds that they share certain characteristics, concludes that he has or she has seen enough and then skips the categorization step entirely by writing a book asserting that if all managers would imbue their companies with those same characteristics, they would be similarly successful. When managers then apply the formula and find that it doesn't work, it casts a pall on the idea. Some faddish theories aren't uniformly bad, you say. It's just that their authors were so eager for their theory to apply to everyone that they never took the care to distinguish correlation from causality or to figure out the circumstances, that word again, in which their statement of causality would lead to success and when it would not. Efforts to study and copy the best practices of successful companies 
almost uniformly suffer from this problem. And I say that because I'm a consultant. Many consultants do this, force best practices on an organization when they are in totally different circumstances. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, we, we had a title, you know, if you even search on Google, you might find it. Uh, I think, I remember the title was kind of managerial malpractice. So we were kind of putting it into kind of a, a doctoral, you know, a health setting is, you know, if you were prescribing X and it wasn't thought through or wasn't looked across circumstances, you could be accused of malpractice. Now we, so at best we're accused of being faddish, um, but maybe malpractice is a more rigorous uh, terminology. So, and I think this goes to not only moving up sufficiently up and down, you know, from the descriptive to the norm or the descriptive to the prescriptive, that's hard to do individually. That takes persistence. And that, you know, and, and, and now, now as we talk about Clay, I mean, one of his absolute superpowers was his persistence. He was so disciplined. He was both hard-nosed and humble at the same time. But that's what's required, the persistence to go through this cycle again and again. you got to be hard-nosed about it, but you got to be humble about it because you, you're doing it because you want to be surprised. You want to do it because you want to improve it. So I think that's why he was so committed. If you look at pretty much every talk, almost every talk, there's an element of this paper brought up in it because I think a lot of people couldn't really understand him because that's the way that was his heads up display. That's the way he navigated both in a hard, hard nosed way because he, he, the world is a serious place. You got to do right by this world, but also this humble way. And I think, you know, one of the challenges that, you know, in some ways got a little easier as his fame grew, then you have more co-authors. So other lenses, different phenomena, because remember, those are some of the key characters from the paper. You know, how do you have the lenses of different disciplines? How do you study, you know, phenomena inside phenomena? So levels of analysis, people from diff very different contexts. So if you look a little bit of, and it's not in a, you know, rational order, but if you look at as his books started to be written, these were with people who increasingly were very, very different from him, had very different backgrounds. And so he was persistent in doing that, but persistent in trying to learn as much as he could to, to, to kind of improve. I think, you know, the, the MBA class and, and those who are, you know, it's continued to be taught. Um, he created a community there of, I'll call them manager scholars. Let's just use that, you know, we'll use that word. Um, but I think it was harder to convince other academics to participate. And again, then we go to the questions of, ego and individualism and tenure processes, you know, it's, you know, um, the academic world is very individualistic because, you know, somewhat by its incentives. Um, I think maybe something Clay and I also share in common. I was a, I was an entrepreneur before I became an academic. And so became an academic, you know, have been somewhat successful, got all the things done I need to do there. But now I'm now an entrepreneur inside of higher ed because, you know, higher ed is not, from my perspective, is not delivering enough value. And so, you know, where's the scarcity? So if I can teach a, a class to 500 and the quality is just as good as I could to a class of 50, you open up all kinds of possibilities. Um, but but the, quality's got, the quality's got to be there, right? That's the innovation part, is online education can scale, but online education as a quality experience uh, has not been achieved very effectively because again it's we treat it as a volume problem 
I can just educate more people. It's like, well, but if I have a classroom of 500, how do I turn that into a learning network? So if I know enough about people and if I give them technology to share problems, right? <laughs> and if I construct the, the curriculum to set that possibility up, which is a different way of teaching than you would in a 50 person classroom, you know, you, you, the, the, the infrastructure potential of innovation. Now I'm equating the word innovation with learning, right? Which it's not a drastic difference, right? Innovation is learning, um, learning from as many people as you can. And uh, you, again, you got to commercialize it, but um, so that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now is trying to, uh, release that potential, which is dormant because, because we've, we use an existing sustaining, you know, if you get, go back to Clay's language, that's a sustaining innovation, right? Um, and I think online is still mostly untapped in terms of using it uniquely, not just for volume. Well, you, you absolutely nailed my sweet spot. I, I, there's a quote by William Pollard, the clergyman in 1888, who said innovation and learning go hand in hand. Because it, it's it's not just learning, but it's unlearning. It's cleaning off the lenses. It's removing the lens. That lens didn't work. I, I often think about that cycling up and down of the triangle as as oh, I thought that lens is work. It's no good. I have to I have to clean it up. Or some parts of it are good. I need to just maybe remove some scratches or or add a little dip, bit of a tint that to see things differently. Paul, I I have a couple of quotes that I I wanted to finish on. Before I do, I wanted to just give you an opportunity to share where people can find you, find out more about your work, more about your papers that you've written before and after, because you've built on this considerably. Yeah, so I'm uh, currently a professor at, at Boston University at the Question School of Business. Uh, been kind of in the dean's office under that role for the last eight or nine years. Um, I wrote a book around, you know, tr you know, disrupting, reimagining higher education, business school education in, in 2016. And that's built a lot upon my work around open innovation. You know, that's something that Clay didn't always, but he acknowledged, right? You know, greater openness is a good thing. Um, I did a lot of work with a gentleman at HBS, Kareem Lakhani, um, when I was still at MIT. He came and introduced me to open innovation because at the time I had been studying Ford and more traditional legacy closed models of innovation. So, in a lot of my work, the last, actually a lot of my work in the context of the, the Dean's role has been to use principles of open innovation uh, to drive change within higher ed. And because one could argue that higher ed is a closed system. Yeah, we share papers, but in some ways it's a closed system. And so how much say do people have in the pedagogy? Can you, you, you know, action learning was one of the first things. Do we allow companies in, but still those were underthought, you know, kind of a, you know, Band-Aid on the end to make it look good. What would it mean to fundamentally bring um, what I call project-based learning into a classroom? Uh, and then we get, you know, going back to my stack model, which would be is, but that's going to require change, right? I'm going to have to transform my knowledge. So the question is, how do I enroll faculty to teach in that? So I start saying project-based learning. And they said, but, you know, but it means and has consequences a different way. And then they start to say, how do I do this? How do I grade? And then by the time we get to the transformation, that's where you would build the model that would reveal the pedagogy and the approach. So, um, so in some ways, the last eight years, I have been maybe more of the, um, the leader 
version of 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 my work and and then again back to the relationship to, to clay is is um you know i had some things that were more successful than others and so i had to learn um and so maybe one thing about circumstances which i think is interesting is another word i'll use is how much do i need to accumulate from my pilot before i do the next thing because this is a question of you know do i am i open to everybody at the beginning? Of course, the answer is no. Um, so I, I pick, I, I pick some new thing, you know, I got to get some variety, I got to get some novelty in there. So I pick that. But maybe my MVP or my pilot is I got to push out that I can construct the product or the UX or things. Because then if I can take that, and I think it's even, you know, that's why you don't need a, a giant, if you have a giant budget in the beginning, you may try to do too much. And, and, and by too much, I mean, you, you can't be everywhere to transform and create the new infrastructure everywhere you got to be. And then people will kill it because it just, because partly you haven't been able to get them to change their thinking and to change their knowledge. So I think a lot about temporally, how do I accumulate with each of my, so I call them business experiments as I move myself to try to scale. Um, so that's one thing I've learned is to, 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 to think about, um, the temporal um, journey that I'm on. Sounds like we've another show on our hands in the future, man. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, but, but you know, and Clay wrote a lot about higher ed, right? And you know, I think he, if he was here, he would say he thought it would happen a little bit faster. Um, you know, we had the, the you know the presentation from Clark, and then in the context there of pathways, that's been a fairly rapid change, um, but a, a kind of a mission driven too. They have a unique organizational structure which. Um, but still a lot of transformation would have to occur there, but it'd be interesting to kind of update. So what do we think about the future of online? Where might it go? Um, you know, there's big, powerful platforms out there who, you know, are they just there for volume or are they there for quality? And I think one of the things that's lost in the conversations around business models, and, and sometimes I have a slight different distinction from about business models from Clay is I think he's always trying to frame the question of, how do you change the business model to sell a product or a service? What we do know about business platforms where, where we have multi-sided contexts, those are more open, right? And so in some ways, the, 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 um, those are more complex business models. And I think in some ways, how does a university, um, what's its role in convening you know, third-party people uh, to do that. But right now in the world we live in, it seems that we've largely made sense of Google and Facebook and these platform companies purely as mostly consumption. It consume products or when there is co-creation, co-creation, it's just, let's say mundane, not terribly meaningful co-creation, but what happens if we actually have to co-create knowledge together to allow the world to be more sustainable because we don't have a lot of that knowledge yet, right? Um, how do we open that up so more people that can, can participate in that construction? Those are some of the things that interest me is how do we open this up more and more so we can innovate faster? The important stuff, man, the important stuff. Um, there's so, I, I got so much out of it that I hope our audience did as well um, from... And even one thing, I'm going to say this because you, you said, uh, yeah, we, we share papers. I, I often think this and and I, I struggle with this, right? So I, I cover a book a week. I read the book. As you know, I, I, I do read it. I 
I, I, I send questions to the author if they want. And then I actually, I, I edit the show myself, Paul, because I want another pass on it. So I want another opportunity to listen to it again and edit it and, and let the concepts seep in. And the reason I say that is I know how difficult it is for our audience to carve out the time to do reading and learning and unlearning. It is hard and, and it, it requires a systematic change of how organizations are set up to be learning organizations because how do you have time to do that? And even when you share papers as an academic to one paper or to the other, you don't really do you really read them? Do you go deep and actually take the time to read them or do you skim them? Because it's a totally different discipline, right? Yeah, and, and the, the challenge of skimming, but the question there is, but then how do all these papers fit together? Because in fact, one of the uh, a version of this paper, which we published in Academy Management Education and Learning in 2009 of this paper we're talking about here, was framed around how does this impact education itself? So it had a little bit more of that focus. And... Um, one of the challenges we face in the academic world is a lit review. So people do a lit review, right? And that's a stand-in for the theory. But it's really just a compilation of names. And maybe in historical order, maybe not, right? But it's more of a signaling device. I've done my reading, but it's not a signaling device as I'm a real serious thinker now, again, going back to the, you know, the, the, the cycles of knowledge building, there's very seldom do you get from reading the, the lit review or even the theory building section that they've done any of that work. And so, you know, so part of, I think, particularly Clay, again, you know, and my interest was to say, we have to take our, our, our vocation as academics more seriously. Here's a, a, an approach that you could take. But more importantly, if yours is different, but, but be, be more rigorous, but more important, how do we do this together? So if we are reading the papers, how do we connect them? How do we learn from each other? And that's, that's a struggle, as, as you well know. I mean, it's more of a struggle in academics as it is than it would be in a company. I mean, company has its functional silos and its delivery dates, but it doesn't have, there's more of a um, collective incentive for success in companies, you know, um, than there is in an academic setting. Yeah, it's it's certainly easier to hide if you want to put it that way, or or be isolated in an academic side, setting. I have two quotes that I picked, Paul, that I think really speak to the spirit of what I wanted to get across today. And then I'm going to leave it to you to say your final word on Clay and and maybe on this work as well. The first quote is by Sir Ken Robinson, who passed away in the last few years as well. He said, "If you're not prepared to be wrong." You'll never come up with anything original. I, I love that quote. And then the second is by you and Clay in the paper where you say, often no model is irrefutably superior. Each seems able to explain anomalies to other models, but suffers from anomalies to its own. I thought that was a great way to finish for me. But what about you? What's your, your final word on, on Clay and maybe on this episode today? Yeah, I mean, these are, you know, I think in some ways this paper with Clay um, was well well accepted by the younger academics because they needed a pragmatic um, roadmap on what their vocation is. I think 
as academics get more famous and they build and they have, you know, they have an accumulation of their theories, um, then that's your Robinson quote, right? They have a harder time being wrong. Now, let's say we had a better infrastructure to share and work in laboratories. They might be more open to being wrong. But right now you read my paper, I read yours, and maybe we see each other at a conference every other year, right? And so there's not even, again, when we think about the infrastructure for innovation, academics is set up poorly. Certainly business academics is set up poorly to innovate together. Um, And so, so again, in in the segue to the quote uh, from the paper with Clay, I think the reason why you have to be prepared to be wrong is because, and, you know, Clay would always say this, it's, I'm not wrong. It's the theory. And, and, and it's not so much saying the theory is wrong. It's let's improve it. So remember, it's, it's the William James quote. Theories are small T. They're not about the ego. They're not about the individual. They are a tool to improve over time. Um, and, you know, going with my word novelty, you use the theory as you thrust yourself into the novelty, right? Who do I bring on? What, what boundary objects do I use? There's all kinds of things. How do I construct knowledge with this? So I think there is you, 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 you have to decenter your ego, to be okay with being wrong. And then as you decenter your ego, you're, you're much more comfortable with anomalies, discovering anomalies in others. And probably the hardest thing, you know, for Clay or myself would be, you might see the, 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 the anomalies in others, but sometimes it may reveal one in yours. Are you making time? Uh, do I, you know, do I have to collect more data or because I'm focusing on product business models and not platform-based business model, does it, create a bias? Or do I need to, to, to think on both, right? Because those two worlds often don't talk to each other, right? Product-based business models don't talk to platform-based business models. And so maybe there's work to do to bring those two things together. That's what would allow, that's what the, because in some ways that, if Clay was here, I'd say there's currently an anomaly, right? And how we talk about business models. We got product-based business models and we got more platform-based business models and they don't talk because those are very different disciplines, very different traditions. And a, a way forward would be to bring those together because they have, they reveal, each reveals anomalies in each other. You know, platform-based business models thinks everything's a digital good, right? Um, right. Um, you know, or on a product-based business model, it's worried about, um, you know, this question of how do you price for um, non-consumption is a very interesting question in, in, a, in a platform-based business model, right? Because, whether it's a freemium or how do you stimulate demand, right? Um, you know, there's some elements of non-consumption in there that um, are, are is a different way of thinking than you are if you have a product-based business model. You think about non-consumption somewhat, somewhat differently. So I think those are huge opportunities. Um, you know, who's there to do that work, right? I mean, you know, if Clay was here, I mean, maybe this is a segue, right? I mean, if Clay was here, you now. Now you need two clays, right? Clay was also very busy, but he might say, you know, what's the big problem on the horizon? So whether it's thinking about the business models or sustained, you know, we could pick our, our looming problem and, you know, he would be the first hard nosed, humble, persistent guy to try to pull a team together to do it. Right. Cause you know, he was, and again, I, the reason why I say the word hard nosed is he was so persistent. And that, that is, I mean, he may be one of the most persistent people I have ever met. And, um, but of course the results are, are part of that. He was also a very humble man, which, I mean, that, I think that's his legacy, right? 
this persistence, hard nose drive, but this humility to be surprised. Um, that's the, that combination is, 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 is very, very rare. And I think that's what, you know, that's the unicorn that was clay. Beautiful, beautiful way to remember, to remember Clay. And, and it speaks to what you said earlier on about a leader. They need to speak multiple languages, and he used these different characteristics to speak those different languages. Paul, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on this series. And I'm going to say this because I know you have your own book, and we're definitely going to cover that in the future. But for this episode, co-author, along with Clayton Christensen, of The Cycles of Theory Building in Management Research, that paper we talked about today, and I'll link to the other papers so everybody knows what the other papers were Paul covered. Paul Carlyle, thank you for joining us. It's been wonderful to spend time with you, Aiden. I want to thank our sponsor, nextestate.com, who specialize in English-speaking, buying, selling, and managing of properties in the German market. They're Berlin-based. You can find them at next-estate.com.